are listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. Welcome to another episode of Ideas on Trap podcast, where we discuss ideas that can promote growth prosperity and progress in developing countries or what are politely called emerging markets. My guest on today's episode is Kartik Sankaran and I've been looking forward to talking to him for a while because he has such an intellectually rich and diverse perspective. He was most recently the director of global strategy at the political risk consultancy Eurasia Group. With a background in modern European history, his work in the last 30 years spans economics, finance, journalism, and the political economy. Kathik and I started by continuing the exploration of the idea of economic complexity that formed the core of my previous episode with Ricardo Ausman. I hope you enjoy it and see you guys after the show. There's one idea which you expressed on your Twitter feed, which I enjoy very much, though you don't tweet that often, anyway, which is the relationship, so to speak, between economic growth and economic slash technological complexity. I spoke to Ricardo Hausman of Harvard recently, and he also, I mean, he's also quite big on that idea, which... He invented it. Uh, exactly. So, I mean, I'm kind of uh, in a miss about its lack of popularity, so to speak, in development thinking, because everything seems to revolve around industrialization, manufacturing. Like, what are the nuances? Can you unpack the concept of economic and technological complexity and how it then relates to economic growth and development. The way I think about it, and I should preface this by, by saying, and now you've just dropped another extremely illustrious name. I know that Mark Koyama was on recently. Now you have Ricardo Hussman as well. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> so I, should, I, should, I should emphasize that uh, I am not an academic by any stretch. Uh, you know, my background is kind of, a, I was an aspiring historian many years ago, and then European and Italian history. Ended up as a journalist and in financial markets, focusing on emerging markets, uh, currency and fixed income. Then went to Eurasia Group, which is a political risk consultancy. So what I'm going to say is probably going to be somewhat more scattershot, somewhat more impressionistic. So let me just get that out of the way. But I mean, I think complexity to me is industrialization is a part of it. Right. But when I think about this more in terms of the countries that I've looked at, as a strategist, as a trader of these kinds of assets. And one thing that's become very clear to me is that what people fear in emerging markets is the so-called middle income trap, right? You grow and then you stall out. And there are only a handful of countries that have managed to reach escape velocity, so to speak. And these are kind of originally the small mix, Hong Kong, Singapore, and then Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, kind of before them. And all these countries, you know, are in East Asia. And conversely, I think a lot about Latin America, which also was a very important 
kind of cluster of like developing countries and or emerging markets, as we might call them. And people talk a lot. People wonder, for instance, is China going to get stuck in the middle income trap and so on? There's a lot of conversation about this. And it struck me that what we're not talking enough about is the fact that Latin America as a whole has been stuck in a middle income trap, you know, for 40 years in some cases, for more than 100 years in others, in the case of Argentina. And, yeah. and Argentina was actually rich at one point. And it struck me that basically one of the fundamental differences is in this idea of complexity, right? I sent out a chart yesterday borrowing from Ricardo Hausman's work at the Athens of Economic Complexity. And what you see is that in relative terms since the 1990s, you've seen countries like China and Korea go up in the rankings. Uh, Korea indeed has been spectacular, but China's also had a very sharp run since 1990 and presumably even more since 1980, while countries like Argentina, Brazil have gone down. And Chile has kind of stayed roughly the same. And Chile is interesting because it's often held up as a Latin success because it has diversified its economy away from copper, but it's diversified it into other commodities or other kind of first order derivatives of commodities. And I think there's a problem there. What you want for a country is to be approaching to me, part of development is approaching the technological frontier and to be approaching it on multiple fronts, right? Not just in one industry, but in a broad range of them. And also to be doing so not just in industry, but also in services where it might not be the technological frontier, but it's some combination of technology and productivity. And you need that in services as well, because one of the things that's likely to happen, you've seen it, is that, you know, you go from a a phase in which you move people from agriculture to industry, but then people also move from industry to services. And there's this related concept from Danny Rodrick of uh, premature deindustrialization, where a country kind of reduces the weight of industry in its economy too soon. And to my mind, one of the things that defines that too soon is what is the level of the tertiary sector. Is that tertiary sector one that is relatively advanced, has relatively high productivity in global terms, or is it akin to just going back to the kind of tertiary sector that existed you know, before or early in the onset of industrialization? But to me, success is about achieving complexity on multiple fronts in a diversified economy. So you can just deal with shocks. You're not kind of a one-trick pony, extremely undiversified, which is something that seems to have happened over and over again in the commodity space. Before we started, we were talking about the experience of Nigeria in 2014. And I think one of the things that's interesting there is at the time we were kind of comparing the response of different countries to the oil shock, right, which is a different kind of oil shock than what we had before. Typically, oil shocks are demand shocks. This was a supply shock because of U.S. shale and mm -hmm. OPEC's strategy in response to that. And if you think of how different countries dealt with it, uh, my examples were kind of, let's say, you know, Norway, Russia, Saudi Arabia and Nigeria, you know, to give you a fairly broad spectrum of countries. There were some places where the economy took a little bit of a hit, the exchange rate weakened, you had other sectors of the economy that could benefit from the weaker exchange rate from that terms of trade shock and continue. I'd argue that Norway and Canada look something like that. There was Saudi Arabia, which is a relatively, compared to the others, you know, 
very undiversified economy, but had massive fiscal resources with which to respond to the oil shock. Uh, there were still other places like Russia that, because, and this shock coincided with sanctions, were for a various political economy reasons able to impose, um, you know, just let the ruble go, hike interest rates, and reduce domestic living standards without too much of a political backlash. So the currency and real living standards took the hit. And then finally, I was having some conversation with people in Nigeria at the time. There was this much more difficult situation experienced in Nigeria because there was not that diversity. There were not those massive reserves. The politics of letting the currency go were very fraught. Eventually it happened, but it was not immediate. And there was concern about what it would do to critical imports and to domestic inflation. So I think, you know, in a very long-winded way, I hope this kind of gives some sense of how complexity and diversity builds resilience. It builds resilience in the form of a policy response to a shock, and it can allow for growth over time. I hope that made sense. You kind of led us into where I was going next, that looking at economic complexity and the way an economy evolve itself. Obviously, if you're trying to do development, if you're a relatively poor country and the kind of policies and the direction with which you try to lead the economy. And then looking at some of the should I say external demands for some form of macroeconomic policies and responses? I mean, you just talked about the oil shock of 2014. For some economies, it could be some other commodity, uh, gold, I mean, diamond, copper, I mean, whatever it is, you know. So how then would you square the interaction or the intervention of institutions like the IMF who then come in when some of these countries, I mean, a country like Nigeria has been through multiple episodes of that, when some of these countries run into trouble because of the commodity dependency, and then there is a demand for macroeconomic stability, uh, letting go of your exchange rate policies, liberalization, privatization, and so many. So how do you square that with, you know, trying to develop and promote or nudge technological or economic complexity, approaching the frontier, you know, like you said, which is a phrase I love very much. How do you square these two things? Do they interact in a positive way? I think historically the answer is probably no. You know, I think IMF thought has kind of changed and changed for the better in a few different respects. But I think one of the issues is that, and again, this is, it may be not be sufficiently academically rigorous, but my view is that one of the oddities of the experience of East Asia is that I kind of semi-joke that it's an embarrassment both to two different schools. It's an embarrassment to theorists of pure dependency, because it shows that there is a pathway from being on the periphery to being the semi-periphery and then potentially becoming a new core or entering the core. You know, so the idea that uh, developed countries are forever locked out 
you know, East Asia as an example of countries that were not locked out. So it's an embarrassment to one school, which is broadly the economic left. It's also an embarrassment to broadly the economic right, I would argue, because those developments did not happen with completely free market. You know, that development occurred in the context of, you know, fairly substantial state intervention, kind of picking, attempting to pick winners with limits on capital convertibility, you know, a lot of which was not part of the adjustment ideas that were propounded by the IMF, certainly in the 1990s and even into the 2000s. Now, more than 20 years after the Asian crisis, you know, almost 40 years after Latin America's lost decade, I think people are starting to pay more attention to what I think of as kind of a good strategy, which is, you know, I'm sure you've read uh, How Asia Works by Joe Studwell, but the idea is yeah. basically, you know, industrial policy works, but it has to be done in the context of a strong state, relatively immune to capture, where industrial policy is not captured by incumbents, where there's a fairly rigorous process of using import substitution only as training wheels, right? And then the wheels come off and then you kind of ride on your own. That import substitution is kind of pathway towards exports where the investments that have been done under industrial policy are subject to ratification or failure in the global marketplace. Relatively limited capital convertibility, which was unorthodox until the 2008 crisis. So you need all these different things kind of coming together, none of which were part of the old IMF programs, which tended to be much more market focused and also more macroeconomic, basically focused on price stability. There was a lot of emphasis on privatization for a couple of reasons. One was to reduce the overhang of external indebtedness because you're bringing foreigners in on the equity tranche, potentially paying them back. And then also because of this concern that state-owned enterprises were extremely susceptible to capture by vested interests in the country. So, you know, I think that the recipe that was applied back in the, in the immediate aftermath of the Mexican crisis and of the Asian crisis, it didn't necessarily work. And, you know, I think the harder question mm -hmm. is, you know, we have some kind of sense of what works by just by looking at the places that are successful. The question is to what extent are those conditions of capacity, of targeted industrial policy, of kind of being ready to, you know, drop the boom on losers and say, okay, you didn't make it in the global markets, you know, the subsidies are stopping. Those are kind of much, much harder internal political economy decisions that some countries can do and others cannot. And even within single countries, there are these big sectoral differences. You know, I'm always amazed by you know, if you kind of look at Brazil, for instance, Brazil is the one developing country that actually has a civilian aircraft export industry. And that is extraordinarily hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Embraer is a success. But if you kind of look at it in the context of other things in Brazil, or when you compare with kind of the broad based scope of successful East Asian industrial policy, Embraer feels a bit lonely in Brazil compared with the other things that we know about, like Petrobras, CBRD, all these other things. My my thoughts, and I mean, I debate this a lot with my friends when the subject of the IMF or any of the Bretton Woods institutions, for that matter, comes up. So 
I think the interaction of the IMF with a lot of the developing countries is through crisis. Yeah. So I don't think the goal of the IMF, for example, is economic development. I sort of interpret the goal of the IMF as, you know, stop doing the stupid things that got you into this problem so you can at least survive. I may be wrong, but that's the way I see it. I don't see the goal of the IMF as helping you to double your average income in 10 or 20 years as a country. Yeah. So, please go ahead. Uh, one of the one of the funny jokes about the Bretton Woods institutions is that I I don't know who said this, but someone once said the most important thing to understand about the World Bank is that it's a fund, and the International Monetary Fund is that it's a bank. So yeah, <laughs> right. So, <laughs> which I th- which I think kind of makes sense if you think about the interventions of the bank. They are more fund like. They are more. Yeah. They're more kind of foundation-like, right, in the sense of being non-crisis capacity-building exercises. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. They have their own preconceptions. While the IMF is like a bank, right? You know, they lend you money, they take it back, and they say, okay, you have to do such and such things to get the money. And I think that's still the case in that a typical country's interaction is when there's going to be a program. A typical country's interaction with the fund and programs have conditionality. And the conditionality is clearly not always to everyone's liking, but the conditionality may often be counterproductive or at least not as beneficial to development as other kinds of intervention might be. And in that sense, I don't think it's an accident that every country that went through the Asian crisis has wanted very little to do with the fund in the years since then. You kind of create this other kind of separate problem that we, you know, people talk about global imbalances, reserve accumulation, or ultimately measures to acquire balance of payments resilience, just so you're not subject to that conditionality from a concessional lender. So, but even at the time, in fact, 1997, 98, Japan, which kind of started this model, wanted to launch an alternative to the IMF called an Asian Monetary Fund, which would impose lighter conditionality than was being suggested by the fund at the time. And apparently the U.S. was very upset. There's an article somewhere about how Larry Summers apparently called Japanese finance ministry and said, you can't do this. Um, this is a time when everyone is upset at Larry Summers. So I feel I can say this. <laughs> He's on the road, isn't he? <laughs> but this is exactly to your point, right? The interactions that multiple countries have had with the fund have not been that favorable. This notwithstanding the fact that my personal view is, you know, I I know some people there. They are brilliant people. They are, you know, they are very dedicated. I think the Article 4s are some of the best public domain research out there. You know, I used to read them. They're probably better than just about anything you get on the sell side. And program construction has gotten better. But program construction in the emerging markets in particular, you're absolutely right. There's not that much in terms of positive suggestions beyond the purely macroeconomic ones, because a lot of that stuff happens at a kind of intermediate level between, you know, floating the exchange rate, having an independent central bank, those kinds of things. There are micro targets as well in single programs. But I think part of it's they're very financial. They're industrial to a lesser degree, if that makes sense. 
True. I agree with that. Let's move away from the fund. Still pressing with the theme of complexity. So recently, to kind of illustrate your point about approaching the frontier on multiple fronts, whether it is through industrialization or in services. Recently, one of the cabinet ministers you know, came out publicly to slam a previous administration that rather than paying back the international debt the government owed at the time, it could have actually used that capacity to build local infrastructure, you know, power, roads, rail, which obviously the country still lacks. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, the point I made to my friends then was that the the one of the benefits of the reform of that administration at the time, you know, by paying back those loans, by uh, getting the debt relief, you know, and by pushing through some of these reforms, it unlocked this extraordinary capacity in the service sector. I mean, a whole new ecosystem in the Nigerian capital market came up. You know, and along with it, bureaucratic capacity, whether it is the Security and Exchange Commission and so many other things, there was bank consolidation and the banks were given a new target in their capital mm-hmm. visa and it became bigger and they could take on more risks and finance bigger projects. There was also the telecommunications boom as yeah. well. So there was this boom. I mean, there was also growth in insurance. I mean, I came into the labor market as a young graduate around that time, and it felt really good, you know. Now there's an entire generation of bond market analysts, investment analysts in Nigeria that we couldn't dream of 30, 35 years ago. And that kind of tells me how complexity actually helps an economy and how the federal minister in this case was just using binary thinking, you know. No, I, I think I think that's right. I mean, one of the hard things to do, and I'm going to you know use an example that I know somewhat better in this case. This is our, if you look at, I, I don't mean to change it, but I'm just kind of reaching for the things Please that, go I, ahead. that I. One of the things that I find really fascinating is you need not just complexity and infrastructure. Um, what you need is a diffusion from those advanced sectors into the rest of the economy that kind of percolates through all of it, that percolates outside the big cities, into agriculture, into small towns and so on. And I think depending on what it is, you're going to get that. So I mean, telecommunications is a perfect example, right? I mean, the extent to which you've had this immense revolution, I think, throughout the world because of cell phones is pretty spectacular. And it has an influence on social capital, on, on knowledge of markets, on all these other things. That said, cell phones kind of becomes the only example that people have of this, right? Because the hard infrastructure to support other things might not have advanced at quite the same pace. And it's kind of the example that I kind of think of when I say this. 
is if you compare, say, Mexico with China, right, on the economic complexity indices, Mr. Hausman's indices, uh, they are right next to each other, the number 18, number 19. Mexico is kind of very different from South America in the sense that because of NAFTA, it is very substantially integrated into the North American manufacturing sector by Maquila. It's not just in autos, most obviously, but also in aerospace. But if you kind of look at Mexican, you know, Mexican per capita income versus China, let's say, they're about the same, but China has been growing. Mexico has kind of flattened out. And the argument here, and it's someone that you probably follow up, you know, it's a point that was made, I think, by Ciro Rasmus, who you probably follow on Twitter. He's an economic historian as well, you know, is that what's lacking in the case of Mexico, in particular, when you compare with East Asia or even with the Central and Eastern European countries that join the EU, is that there is a highly advanced sector that is fully integrated into North American manufacturing circuits. But there is very little diffusion out of that into the rest of the economy. It's very segregated regionally. It's segregated by sector. It doesn't really appear in agriculture. So to go back to what you were saying, I think to have those gains in complexity in the service sector are enormously important because a deeper financial system enables different things. It enables the availability of credit for other enterprises. It potentially enables the creation of mobilization of domestic resources, you know, the creation of a, of a Naira fixed income market, for instance, which mm-hmm. I don't think exists, uh, and potentially reduces at least to some extent the foreign dependence on foreign flows. So obviously it's problematic because in this case you had a peg and expectations that the peg would hold and foreign investors got scared and you know, all these other things. But there are a number of good things that can proceed from having a deepening of that portion of the service sector that's involved in intermediating domestic savings. But you want to make sure that it happens in a context where it's also diffuse outside that most advanced sector of the economy. And that, to some degree, involves kind of an expansion of hard infrastructure as well to bring those sectors that are kind of located more precariously, more informally into the fold as well. So it's like that. Why not both give? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. And I mean, to your observation, I've been trying to get you to Erasmus on the show, but he's shy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the capability of the state in all of this. State capacities, like you noted, a big theme on the show. And most recently, I discussed it with Mark Oyama. But for the relevance of our exchange, which something you alluded to earlier while talking about the ideological polarity that exists in development thinking, which is, in this case, development has not really happened via the ideological template of free market thinking. You know, so you need the state to create markets and do so many things. And China is often used as the most uh, demonstrative example of this you know so one assumption i see is that you need a strong state from the start you know for you to do certain things whether it's to encourage export orientation discipline the industrial sector you know like general park you know and so many things and one of the things that's often alluded to is this 
long history of the Chinese state and usually my retorts in informed companies that is okay but what about Taiwan which became a state in 1949 and so many other countries. I know Ricardo also talked about the co-evolution that happens between how an economy grows in complexity and the capability of the state itself. So what are your thoughts on the interactions that takes place between the state sector or state capability in this case and how the economy advances you know do you necessarily need a strong state or do you just need a state that is informed on what to do and what not to do i think i'd say the single most important characteristic is you need to, at the very least, be able to collect revenues and provide a certain basic level of overhead capital, right? So, you know, <laughs> peace, policing, law courts, public health, you know, all of which is difficult in and of itself, education. So you kind of start out with things that sound rudimentary, but are actually very hard and are not available everywhere, right? So education, health, baseball in order, right? So even those are a pretty big ask in some places. Once you've done that, the flip side to that is revenue collection to fund those more elementary functions. Then there's the question of to what extent, if you're not doing those things, can you engage in intervention in the economy alongside the task of providing those things? And the answer is I think yes, but it's likely to be regionally limited because the success of any kind of industrial policy initiative is likely to depend on your provision of those first three more rudimentary elements. I think the other issue here is once you start thinking about a more interventionist state, it becomes important for it to avoid capture. Right? Because that, that's kind of the risk you're done. And, that, and that's the higher order of capacity. So you can kind of think of the basic stuff the state's supposed to provide and level of bureaucratic and kind of judicial impartiality, the idea of the rational libertarian state, and then there are interventions. I think there's a risk that if you embark on interventions before some of these other conditions obtain, then the interventions themselves might fail because they're occurring in a context where the interaction of local society and a highly partial bureaucracy or a politicized bureaucracy or one that is relatively easily corruptible for whatever reason leads to the failure of those initiatives. You know, again, if I maybe permitted an example from just, you know, what I used to do before I got into markets, I was a aspiring Italian historian. And it's very interesting that because Italy's long before the euro started, it's a story of 150 years of attempted interventionism in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially in the post-World War II period, the relative failure of developmentalist economics in the more problematic soil of southern Italy compared with the north, you know, is, is very interesting. So this is not just an emerging markets problem. In the 1930s, during the Great Depression, you, know, you had a wave of industries and banks go under, and Italy created this massive holding company that then was instrumental in setting up some extremely advanced facilities or building out Italian capacity in the post-war. But those successes were to a greater degree in the North than in the South. Because it's, you know, so I, I, the, 
So that's kind of where you have, we also have the interaction with local society, with local elites and their relationship with national politics. Just something else that I think is another part of the story is that interventions occur not just through industrial elites or financial elites, but also with political elites. And what are the quid pro quos that happen between an interventionist state and a national or especially a local political elite become very interesting. Um, in the Italian case, that local political elite in the South was key to holding national power. And, you know, so maybe some of those interactions were not as fruitful as they could otherwise have been. So I think there's this other kind of even within a single country, there are these many regional aspects to it. You know, I talked about Mexico, the same duality in, in India, and I'm sure it exists in lots of other places. But, uh, you know, to go back to your original question, those are things that kind of potentially vitiate the capacity of an interventionist state to do what it's trying to do. Are there features of a society, and I mean, this is highly speculative, that then, I don't want to sound deterministic, that then shape the nature of the state that emerges, because sometimes it's genuinely puzzling how maybe states within the same geographic neighborhood having widely divergent capabilities, you know. I think this then leads into a Smoglu and Robinson with inclusive and extractive institutions, you know, and yeah. yeah. I'm somewhat I am somewhat wary of that for various reasons. But let me put it this way. I think one issue with AJR is I find my personal view is that the definition of extractive versus inclusive smacks to me to some degree of tautology, you know, that extractive institutions work worse than inclusive ones. But then it turns out that if something works, there's always a way to kind of point back to, well, it was really inclusive. So maybe I'm not phrasing it right, but there seems to be a slightly tautological element to it. But I think the other reason that I kind of have questions about this is, for one, it seems likely to lead to what Hirschman calls the rhetoric of reaction, right? That it will be, first it goes from being futile to being counterproductive. And then, I, I can't remember what, what the third is, you know, the, the unintended consequences of good intentions. So I don't like the idea that holding someone back. The other issue is that, and this is an argument sometimes made about you know, China's investment boom, that a lot of the investment is happening in places with low social capital. And so these investments are likely not to be as fruitful as they might otherwise be. Now, one reason I find that somewhat problematic is that I think there are cases where the introduction of physical capital, of investment, can boost social capital. So if you think about it, if you're going to invest in railroads or, let's say, or cell phone towers or something like that, these are potentially innovations that change the way the society itself operates and makes it more trusting. There's clearly cases where that has not happened yet. But for me, what I would kind of pin down in those instances is the nature of social relations kind of within that society and the nature of the relationship of elites in that society to the national state. 
if you end up with a system where you have a relatively poor society that is dominated by local elite notables whose primary role is the distribution of largesse from the central government in exchange for consensus that goes back to the center, then you might end up with a situation in which rather than that assistance or intervention leading to convergence, it leads to deconvergence because it is the interests of those elites to prevent that system from evolving past that point. And to me, that's the kind of halfway answer between writing something off as completely hopeless and thinking that you can have dramatic change. And it's it's how those relationships are mediated in that soil. And, you know, there's examples of South of Italy, there's examples from the American South, there are examples from kind of, you know, the Eastern Gangetic Plain in India that I think all kind of fit into this kind of model of a state that may try to intervene but it gets hijacked by a set of interests in that area that want the intervention to proceed only in a way that does not lead to an enhancement of state capacity. So trying to avoid determinism and futility there. Hold on to some hope. Let's talk about ideas before we move to uh, globalization and uh, other market issues. So the ideas that the people with power and the people who are responsible for policy. Roderick calls politicians policy entrepreneurs, you know, the ideas that they have about how to shape society, the beliefs that they have about policy. I mean, before we started, we talked about the popularity of import substitution industrialization in so many parts of the emerging markets. To what extent would you say that it matters in economic development? I'm going to use India as an example. Um, I mean, you left India when you were 17. I know there's probably a lot going on locally that you may not be able to speak about. You know, So one way I like to <laughs> make this example, which may be simplistic and not too accurate, is take the difference between someone like Amartya Sen, you know, who is more leftist, and uh, Jagdish Bhagwati, who is more of a free trade. So take those two approaches and say a generation of politicians that those two strands of ideas or ideology influences, you know, and they got into government and they tried to run the state. How much do such intellectual competition or the competition of ideas, how much do they shape the states and ultimately development? I think the ideas do shape a lot, though, you know, my sense personally is that Sen in particular, obviously, you know, very important, but I'm not sure that he was a, again, it's a kind of a more newspaper experience than academic knowledge of this, but my sense is that the contours of Indian development, kind of between 1947 and 1980, maybe 1990, I mean, Sri thinks 1980 is the real dividing line, is not so much Sen himself, but I'd say two traditions. One is the tradition coming out of the independence, the Gandhian tradition of national self-sufficiency, Nehru's own ideas of Fabian socialism, and then the politics of the Cold War 
where India, for a variety of reasons, ended up closer to the USSR. So I think the ideas are, in fact, very, very important. But I would locate those ideas in the Indian context of self-sufficiency and import substitution on more in kind of the Fabian USSR Gandhian ideology than Sen himself. And there's an argument that things were already beginning to change when Indira Gandhi came back to office in 1980 because the kind of high tide of import substitution was actually in the government that took office after Indira Gandhi was defeated in the elections that followed the emergency. It was a broad-based anti-Congress government against the experience of the emergency that included both the ancestors of the BJP and the Indian socialists. And as that was the time that Coca-Cola was thrown out, IBM was thrown out. There were three domestic colas uh, introduced at the time, one of which was a government cola, which kind of like <laughs> uh, kind of took the import substitution to a higher power. But I think already there's a belief that under the influence of her sons, Indira Gandhi herself wanted a somewhat more open economy starting in 1980. And then, of course, with the fall of the Soviet Union and the balance of payments crisis in 1991, you needed a much more substantial opening up of the economy. But that already kind of started by the mid-80s. I think then the other thing that happens, and this is something you talked about in your podcast with Mark Kramer, either the Charles Tilly argument that interstate competition or at least the desire to emulate a competitor becomes a motor force. So I think Bhagwati is definitely part of that. But already, I think, you know, by the 2000s, the comparisons with what's happened, most obviously China, start to play a much bigger role in Indian policy. The other thing is there's also much more diversified uh, responses among the different states, with some states really proclaiming themselves as being open for business, you know, Gujarat, Maharashtra, Tamil Nadu. I think the other thing that's actually very important here is, and I mentioned this because I actually remember thinking at the time in the 1980s that Chinese industrialization was different or under Deng was different because it was driven to a fairly substantial degree by a group of expatriate Chinese around Asia, most, you know, not just in Taiwan, but in Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, other places like that. And they were among the first port of call. And I remember thinking at the time, which probably when I was in my 20s, oh, it's too bad that the expatriate Indians are all doctors or engineers. Mm-hmm. Of course, this was almost certainly like roughly contemporaneous with the great IT boom, right? <laughs> Which then, <laughs> or maybe just before that, I probably had some awareness at that point. But that then became a huge part of the push to invest back in India with this kind of expatriate Indian engineer community had become entrepreneurs at that point and were pushing for openness. You know, I mentioned the doctors because when I first came here, it seemed as though a large number of the people I met, Indians at university who had kind of grown up here, had parents who were doctors or engineers or academics. What kind of changed, you know, in the 1980s, in the 1990s to a much greater degree was that kind of academic industrial complex really took off, right, with Silicon Valley, with biotechnology and stuff like that. And those people recognized the strengths and the capacities of India to potentially contribute to that as a destination for investment. Again, I'm not sure I answered your question, but to sum up, I would say ideas definitely played a part in the policy choice. Then there was kind of, okay, we're running out of options here, both for international reasons and for domestic reasons and a different path. The one thing I will say that India managed to do very successfully to its great credit was 
you know, I don't know if there's Bhagwati's influence directly, but I think one thing that India has done very successfully is to integrate much more with global goods markets than with global financial markets. Hmm. Thank you very much. Thank you, oh, thank you so much yeah. for the opportunity. I really love talking yeah. to you. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasuntrapped.com. Thank you.